Bible, take it home. It's our gift to you as we continue in Exodus. Uh, we began last week in Exodus chapter 3, and we're jumping ahead um, to, to what kind of culminates at the end of this here for us, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings that you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Goat hair, ram skins dyed red and another type of durable leather. Acacia wood. Olive oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. And onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. Then have them make me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, I thank you for this word this week and what it has spoken to me about who you are and about what you draw us into and the importance of your presence and the sacrifice that that brings. God, I pray that, that my words this morning up front here would, would not be my own thoughts because I don't have anything to bring before anyone other than what would bring people to your word and to your thoughts that are higher than our thoughts, that your ways are higher than our ways. And God, I pray that, that as we speak this truth that your word would change us it would make us more like you than when we came. It is in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. This, this last week, I was, I was blessed with a number of people from our, our church family. Uh, there's a couple missing there, but the majority of us, we got together in a picture uh, to go to the third annual Safe Families for Children uh, gala event, which was held in Lake Geneva. If you don't know what Safe Families is, it's a, it's a ministry that equips the church to support children and families in moments of crisis. It's, it's an incredible ministry we're very supportive of and uh, grateful to, to be able to, to support and be a part of. Um, but the reason I'm sharing it with you is, is I was seated at a table that was, was mostly people that I didn't know, or at least I didn't know very well. And uh, one of the people I did know at the table was a, a staff member. Her name is Sarah. And I recognized her husband's name, though I hadn't seen him in quite some time. Um, but I, I believe that I had met him before because I'm pretty positive that nearly 12 years ago now, um, he photographed my wife Alyssa's in my wedding. And he's still a photographer to this day. And so when he sat down at the table and introduced himself, he said, hi. I said, hi, I'm Tom DeGroote. Do you remember a wedding from 12 years ago? <laughs> he said, hi, Tom. <laughs> I've done over 400 weddings <laughs> since 12 years ago. I don't remember a whole lot these days. And then he asked me, he said, tell me what it looked like. And I thought that was an interesting question. Well, well, it was, it was you've done 400 weddings, it's easy. It was the most beautiful bride you've ever photographed. That's what I should have said. But Alyssa wasn't with me that night, so I wouldn't have gotten credit for it anyway. It's what I believed. What he was really after, though, is he was after the elements of the service. He wanted to know what it looked like specifically. And so, so I explained to him the church setting and I explained to him the people and even like the, the candelabras that went down the center aisle. 
And as I was explaining those physical features, he looked at me and he said, flowers. And I said, yeah, we had flowers. And he said, no, no, did, did you guys take a picture out by the lake on a pier with you in the background and flowers in the center in the front? And I said, yes, we actually have that one printed in our uh, master bedroom. And he said, now I remember, yeah, I was there. And I thought that was interesting, that after 400 weddings, he didn't remember a lot, but what brought him back to remembering that he was present at our wedding was the elements. It was the candles, it was the flowers, and, and that doesn't mean that it was about the candles and the flowers and the elements. It wasn't about that, but what those elements did is they drew everyone who came to the wedding together to focus on the point that we were there to begin with, that God's presence was making the two people become one. And not only did those elements point to the main event, but 12 years later, those elements reminded a photographer who has shot over 400 weddings that he had been there, present at that moment. Now, I think about that. I think about the holidays. How many of you have some Thanksgiving tradition that you're going to participate in this year? Just show of hands. Maybe it's something that you're going to cook that's a, a recipe from great-grandma. Maybe it's something you do after Christmas and you set up the Christmas tree. How many of us have ornaments that are at least one or two generations back now? Say, so, yeah, we've got, we got those. My parents have those at their house, and it's fun because now I get to bring my kids to see the ornaments that I remember hanging when, when we were growing up. But maybe for you, it's Christmas cookies, or it's when and how you set up the lights. It's not about those elements, though, right? It's about what they represent. It's about what we're doing. And today, that's what we're going to be talking about. As we get into our third week of our series, Presence, we're, we're taking this cursory look through the scriptures, and we started at the beginning, we're ending at Christmas, and our goal, even though we can't cover all of it, is to see that on every page of the Bible, what the focus is, and it's a singular focus, is it's God's focus on being present. And so what we learned the first week is, is that in the beginning, God's presence was what brought order to the universe. And it's what brought order to the lives of the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden. And we learned at the very beginning that that order was broken because of sin. And I gave you a different definition of sin than you might be used to. It's the things that we do and the things that we fail to do that break our relationship with God. And they break our relationships with others. It's, it's not that God is so legalistic that this book, and if you've never read much of it, you might have the wrong idea about it. It's not that the Bible is a book of a bunch of things that we're not supposed to do because God said so. It's a story of people. And it's a story of people who have been making these choices that have distanced themselves from God and from others since the very beginning of time. And it's not even about that, but it's about God's pursuit, his mission to draw people back to him. And, and maybe for you, as we get into the holidays, that's the draw as you look at this whole series about presence, that, that, that you want God's presence in your life because you say you don't know how many areas in my life are disordered and I need God's order to come into it and I want to, God to call me into it. And what we learn is that not only does God's presence bring order back into our lives and not only are we called into that presence, but presence does also bring sacrifice. 
Presence brings sacrifice. If, if you want to be present with God and if you want to be present with others, you're going to need to give something up. And, and sacrifice is the thing that we're reading about today in the book of Exodus. Now, if you missed last week, we started at the beginning of Exodus. And we learned the, the author Moses, his name is, is, um, means I drew him out of the water. Um, because that's what the Pharaoh's daughter named him. She literally drew him out of the water and God had a plan for Moses. God's plan for Moses was that he would grow up and he would, he would lead the Israelites, the Hebrew people, out of slavery and into a new physical location called the Promised Land. And on their way to that place, he taught them and prepared them for his presence. But it didn't start there. It started by him breaking the bondage of slavery. He, he saved them from the bondage of slavery and took them out of that place. And then after that, he provided for their physical needs, manna from heaven that came up out of the ground so that they could eat. And then he gave them the law so that they knew how to live. And it was then at that point, after that, in Exodus 25, that we read about the culmination of all of these things, that God provided these people with instructions to build this thing called a tabernacle, which would represent and would bring forth a place where God's presence would dwell with his people. And that's what we're reading about today in 25 verse 1. The Lord God said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me, from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. Now, I stop there because God is asking for a lot of really odd things, isn't he? <laughs> Like, like half of these things, is there at least one thing on that list that you don't even have a clue what it is? Just show of hands. <laughs> okay, good. I'm not alone. But here's, here's the thing. Before you get too weirded out by this and this list of items, think about a wedding. Is there not a similar list of items that are weird and out there? Like we even have a saying for it, right? Like you need to have something old, something new, something borrowed, something Blue. So the Bible is not the only place where we have a list of weird items needed for a ceremony. But it turns out, just like a wedding, there's a purpose for all of it. It's not about the items. It's about the culmination of those items that come together for a purpose. Moses is being instructed by God to lead his people to prepare for something. Specifically, verse 8, he says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. I will be present with them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And between this passage, verses, or chapter 24 and 25, all the way through chapter 40, we see an intricate detail that God puts forth for Moses and his people to build this tabernacle. And so sit down, because I'm going to read it to you. That would be terrible. <laughs> and it would be terrible because it's so detailed that today we've got technology. We can actually put images together to be able to see what this looked like. And so instead of reading it to you, which would take all day, instead I want to spend two minutes and I want to show you. And so let's spend a few minutes here now and watch this video of what the tabernacle would have looked like if they followed the instructions God put before them. Let's watch. 
As the children of Israel left the life of slavery they had known for four centuries, God led them into the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. Here in the wilderness, the work of stripping away their identity as slaves began. A new culture was being fashioned, one that would reshape their identity and teach them in literal and symbolic ways that God was their only hope and their only source for life. The focal point for their physical camp, as well as the center of their worship, would be known as the tabernacle, or tent of meeting. Moses was summoned upon Mount Sinai, where God would speak to him for 40 days and nights, outlining the culture, giving the fundamental Ten Commandments, and explaining the ethics of this emerging culture he was creating in his chosen people. Upon Mount Sinai, God gave the blueprint for a portable dwelling place where his divine presence would be among the people as he led them forward toward the promised land, their permanent home. There would be an outer courtyard around the tent of meeting and inside the tabernacle there would be an outer chamber known as the holy place and an inner chamber known as the most holy place or holy of holies. Here in the holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant would dwell and the very presence of God would descend and be among the people. The tabernacle would occupy the center of the multitude, a million or more strong, surrounded by the Levites, who were set aside to care for it and lead the people in the worship of Yahweh. The tabernacle accompanied the children of Israel through all their wanderings in the wilderness as an ever-present reminder of who they were and who they were becoming. It crossed the Jordan River with them into the Promised Land and eventually found a more permanent home in Shiloh where the heart of the Israelite worship situated itself for the first three and a half centuries in their new homeland. The tabernacle was the religious heart of the people all the way through the time of the judges. As the time of the kings emerged, the Ark of the Covenant was lost in battle by King Saul, later to be regained but never again to be at Shiloh. Later. King David would bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and his son Solomon would build the first permanent replacement for the tabernacle, the Temple of God. Now, apart from the tour buses and cameras <laughs> that you see in the video, it, it is a representation of what the instructions are to Moses to build. This is the tabernacle that the ancient Israelites would carry with them and that would carry the presence of God, that would bring into the center of their very being God's presence with them. And I want to just I want to point out a couple of observations, too, specifically. The first one is that the tabernacle at this moment was portable, and the reason is because these were a nomadic people. They were moving. And God desired to be present with them no matter where they went. 
But the second observation, the one we're going to talk about for the rest of our time, is that to enter the tabernacle, to enter into the presence of God, the priest had to offer a sacrifice. And if you're interested in that whole system, you can read the book of Leviticus and read about the sacrificial rituals and the worship and all of those things. But the bottom line that I want you to know today is that blood needed to be shed for their sins so that they might enter into the presence of God. Because presence brings sacrifice. Presence brings sacrifice. And and this is a place where, where many of us get caught up in the Bible, and we wonder, what does this all mean? Like, like what could God possibly have ever wanted with dead animals? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> the answer is nothing. God never needed them. The sacrifice was always meant to point you and I to the main event, just like the flowers and the candles and all of the trappings of a wedding are meant to point you to God's presence with the bride and the groom. The sacrifice was intended to draw us to the reality that we are lost in sin, and a sacrifice atoning will be required to draw us back into the presence of God and others. King David understood this. And, and he's the one whose son would build the, the temple, the permanent place where this would, would be housed. And, and it was actually, and sorry, it wasn't him. It, yeah, it was his son, Solomon. And, and the, way in which, the way in which he would build it is, is fascinating. King David would, would, would con- commit one of his, his, cardinal, his cardinal sin when he would cheat on uh, a woman who was married, cheat with a woman who was married. Her name was Bathsheba. And then when she got pregnant, he would have her husband killed. It was eventually the two of them that would, would birth Solomon who would build the temple because God uses broken situations. God uses broken people. But God still asks us for a sacrifice in the midst of this to come into his presence. And, and David would be kind of called out on the rug for the way in which he was acting by a prophet named Nathan. And David came to the realization that he was sinful, that he had made all these mistakes. And he wrote Psalm 51 as, as his cry out to God in this moment. And he said this, God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. See, see, we get weirded out and confused about this whole concept of sacrifice, but the truth is we would probably prefer to make the sacrifice than give God what he really wants. See, David, in his day, he was, he was saying to God, name the price, <laughs> I'll buy a dove if that's what you want. I'll buy a thousand doves. I'll send the army out to shake every tree and collect every dove there is and make that sacrifice to you. And that's not what God wanted in that moment. He knew that there was no amount of sacrifice that would ever make him feel fully forgiven, fully atoned for, that would fully lift the guilt. It's not what God wants, but it also doesn't mean that the sacrifice isn't important and even required. The sacrifice in the temple was meant to point to the real sacrifice, which would not be made by an animal, but it would have to come from God himself. And see, that's what God was pointing his people to all along. But it doesn't start there. And think about the order of the story at this point. And I shared it before. God has broken the chains of slavery. 
He has invited these people out of Egypt into the, into the wilderness, and they wander for decades. He, he provides for their physical needs. He gives them the law. And after they're tired, and you've got to imagine that they're just so weary, and you know they've been complaining, and they want to go back, and it's all they ever knew, and all of this. And it's in that moment, in chapter 24, in chapter 25, where God gives Moses the instructions that now you're going to build this sanctuary. And I am going to be present with you after all that they've been through. And I think about that and I wonder if sometimes that's the way God comes to us as well, right? You know, when you hear the gospel, if if you've come to a place where you've really accepted what God has done for you, it's this concept that, that God has broken the chains of your sin and your guilt and your shame. And you don't have to be the sacrifice because God has provided the sacrifice. And, and so you're, you're saved from that moment. And, and he draws you out and draws you on this journey of becoming more like him. And he provides for your needs. And so you come to a Thanksgiving service because you know that beyond what it's remembering as a country, it's remembering that God has given us everything. And so you're thankful to God. And you start to study his word and you start to learn to walk in his way but it's hard and it's painful and it's difficult and we get tired and it was in that moment for the Israelites that that they build this temple and they bring all this tabernacle and they bring all of these elements together and I can almost imagine that after the entire journey and all of the pain and all of the work and all of the questions that they walked into that sanctuary and said wow now I get it now I understand the plagues and the God who called to Moses through the burning bush and why all of this matters. Now I understand as I enter into this place, I understand that I don't understand, but as I look at the gold and and I smell the incense and I see the burnt offerings and I see the blood that's shed and the smoke that's billowing from the holy and holies, how can I help but look at all of this and say, wow. And it reminds me of my wedding. Because see, and I've shared this before, I, when Alyssa and I got married, I, I, I've shared it before, I'm sure, that, that what I really would have liked to do with all the money that it costs to have a wedding is, is I would have liked to have a destination wedding. <laughs> and some of, you, some of you are smiling, some of you had that destination wedding, I, I envy you. But no matter where you had your wedding, whether it was, it was more traditional like ours or whether it was on a beach somewhere... I know for me, all the preparation leading up to it, it almost, in some ways, it it just seemed kind of unnecessary, right? Like, why do we have to make sure to have this many centerpieces? And why do we have to make sure to have all of these candles and these flowers and all of this stuff, all of this planning? I I almost didn't want to go through the process until I entered the sanctuary and I saw my bride. And she was the most beautiful bride in 400 weddings. I'd argue that to anyone because I saw her at the end of the aisle and I said, wow. Now I get it. And I looked at a bold church of people who love us and who we love, who had come to that moment, to that place, so that they could experience what God was about to do to make the two become one. And in an instant, it all came to me that it all made sense why we went out and we got fitted for tuxedos and we bought candles and we got a cake and we did all of these things because this was the moment that all of it was pointing to. And in that moment, I got it. It mattered. And it turns out Jesus would agree with my analogy because 
He describes our future with him, and the scriptures describe our relationship with him as the bride that is being welcomed by the groom. And, and it's why, in part, that the first uh, thing that he does is a miracle in the Gospel of John is, is he turns water into wine at a wedding feast, at a, at a wedding feast that happened after the wedding. And after that, he turns his attention to the temple because they're related. And it's just before the Passover. And it says this, right after the water turned into wine. You've heard that story. You've heard this story. But you probably never put them together unless you've read through it this way. In verse 18, it's, or verse 14, it says this. He went into the temple courts and he found people selling cattle sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money he walked into the sanctuary it would be like me walking into my wedding and somebody hawking tickets in the front <laughs> and pocketing the money jesus walked in this is his house and he sees them making profit on sacrifices and so he made a whip out of cords and he drove them all out of the temple courts and he drove the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the coins and the money changers. He overturned the tables. That sounds really nice, doesn't it? It was not nice. Jesus is throwing furniture in the middle of the temple. And to those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it was written in the book of Psalms, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. And you look at this and you go, so what does that mean? Like, like why is he so passionate about a temple? Why is he so passionate about a house? Why is he so passionate about a tent? Why is he so passionate about a church? Well, after he threw all the tables and he had this fit, the Jews responded to him and said, who do you think you are? And it doesn't say this, but I just imagine that this part of the conversation happened with a Pharisee whose nose was right up against Jesus and said, who do you think you are? You show us a sign that proves that you have any right to walk into this temple, which is the presence of God, and just do what you will do. And Jesus answers them, and I believe he was still there right with his nose up against that guy's nose, and he said, you want a sign? Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they call this bluff, verse 18. It says this, or sorry, verse 20. He said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to build it three days? <laughs> but the temple that he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and it was at that moment that they believed in the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. See, Jesus would not die for the temple because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple. And the temple was always about the presence of God. And these people forgot about its purpose to the point where, where they were making it about them making money in the midst of the sacrifices. And in the midst of their confusion, they had the presence of God standing in the narthex, standing in the welcome area, standing in the courts. And they did not even know it was him, so much so that eventually they would make him their sacrifice by nailing him to a tree which turns out was his plan from the moment that he was born from the moment of the very beginning of time because if Jesus in one body 
could walk the earth 2,000 years ago and be presence of God dwelling among his people, then how much more could God be present if that body would break and if his spirit would be released to dwell in everyone? And that was God's plan, which is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that now you are God's temple and that the spirit of God dwells in you? See, the reason we don't make animal sacrifices anymore is because Jesus is the sacrifice. And because Jesus is the sacrifice, and because not only did he die, but he conquered death and rose again, the promise of God is that he now lives in us, and we are now the temple. But as I said at the beginning, it doesn't mean that the the trappings are unimportant. As David said, The sacrifice is still important, but it's not a burnt offering. It's a broken and contrite heart. And to speak to that sacrifice that God wants from us, I I found a prayer this week in my devotional that I thought spoke extremely well to, to what it is that God calls us to give to him as a sacrifice to invite his presence in to our lives and whatever it is that we're going through. It's, it's written by a, a woman. Her name is Mary M. I'm not even going to try to say her last name. But she was uh, a Catholic um, spiritual influence. She died in 1993. And uh, in, in her words, I read just a little bit of her bio. She was a uh, divorced Catholic who desperately needed the presence of God in her life to be able to experience his forgiveness, to experience the calling that he had put on her heart, to understand what it is that he was doing in her life. And she wrote this prayer. It's called the welcoming prayer. And I want to show it to you, and I want to invite you to pray it with me. And, um, and I think you'll see at the end it invites the presence of God, but it goes through the process in which we need to sacrifice in order to get there. And it starts like this. Say it with me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me in this moment because I know it is for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. It's a beautiful prayer, but at that point when I read it the first time, I thought, wait a minute, (laughs) don't put words in my mouth. Because I look back on my day and there have been thoughts that I did not welcome into my brain. There have been feelings and emotions that I did not knowingly welcome into the orbit of my life. That there have been persons that have been the last people that I would want to spend time with. Situations and conditions that I would prefer not to be up against. But the prayer continues. The presence requires sacrifice. And so the next part goes like this. Say it with me. I let go of my desire for security. I let go of my desire for approval. I let go of my desire for control. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. Just stop there for a second. Imagine if you prayed that prayer before Thanksgiving this week. I let go of my desire for security. I let go of my desire for approval. I let go of my desire for control. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. Say the last part with me. 
eye open to the love and presence of God and the healing action and grace within. What does that prayer mean? It means what David meant when he said that a burnt offering is not what you desire. It is a broken and contrite heart. That life is not always easy as the journey wasn't easy for the Israelites as they were broken from the bondage of sin and their lives were broken on the journey toward the promised land as our lives are broken in our journey toward the time and the place where, where God's hand will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The promise of God through Jesus is that a burnt offering is not required because the offering of Jesus and the cross is what was needed, what was, was needed to bring us back into the presence of him so that we might pray a prayer like this and say that there are many things that come into our lives that we may not welcome and choose on our own. And so we let go. We sacrifice that we might be open to God's love and presence and his work in our hearts. Would you join me in praying for that right now? Lord Jesus we know that you're going to have to change our hearts to welcome all of the things that we go through. But we know that you allow things in our paths that are meant to change us, to draw us closer to you as the sacrifices drew us closer generations ago. We thank you, though, God, that, that as, we, as we enter into this time of a feast that we remember your presence in the midst of, that it, it takes place on an altar that is no longer filled with blood, that we no longer need to kill or destroy because we know that it is your blood that has been shed and that that was the only blood that could possibly be shed to atone for our sins and to pay for our forgiveness. And so, God, we welcome you. And we welcome the circumstances in our lives knowing that you can use them for our healing. As you use the wounds on your own body for our healing. As we open up our eyes, we are reminded of that truth as we take bread, as you took bread with the disciples on the night that you would be betrayed, on the Passover to, to end all Passovers. And you broke it. And you said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat this, remember me. After the supper, you took the cup of blessing and you gave thanks and gave it for all to drink, saying, take and drink this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me.